0: Welcome to the Free Cities Podcast. My name is Timothy Allen and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello and welcome to this episode number 53 of the Free Cities Podcast. Well, I hope that you are all well and enjoying the season of your place in the world whatever that might be here in the hills of mid wales the autumn has most definitely given way to winter now and we're all making our peace with the very cold that we get here speaking of cold um it's a bit off topic but something i would like to share it's funny i was reading a book this morning not a book i expect many of you would necessarily know of it's called kilvert's diary Uh, Francis Kilvert was a local clergyman who lived close to my house here in Mid Wales in the late 19th century and he wrote what became a rather famous diary of rural life around here anyway this morning I was reading a passage in which he was describing taking a bath here in winter and I have to read it for you quotes it was an intense frost I sat down in my bath upon a sheet of thick ice which broke in the middle into large pieces whilst sharp points and jagged edges stuck all around the sides of the tub like chevaux de frise, not particularly comforting to the naked thighs and loins, for the keen eyes cut like broken glass." End of quotes. Chevaux de frise, by the way, are they're those defensive obstacles with really sharp points on them that get used in military campaigns, etc. Anyway. It did make me laugh to think of Reverend Kilvert doing his morning ice bath in the hills of mid-Wales, 150 years before it was trendy. Anyway, I should probably get on with the show. Um, Today's guest, well, he'll be well known to the Bitcoiners amongst you, as will ice baths, of course. His name is Alex Svetsky, and he's an entrepreneur, co-author of the book The Uncommunist Manifesto with Mark Moss. Also had a well-known podcast called The Wake Up Podcast and I caught up with him at BDC Prague and we talked about a number of relatively unusual things I suppose. I'll list a few of them here. The Bushido of Bitcoin, chivalry, collectivism, not so unusual, AI, transhumanism, something called or some things called stochastic parrots. And as I look at that now, that would be quite a good name for a band, wouldn't it? Anyway, augmented samurais. And I'll let you decide whether or not you agree with Alex's sentiment that, in inverted commas, feudalism was peak civilization. See what you make of that. Anyway, that's enough from me. I'm not here to judge, of course. I'm just here to encourage you now to all please... Sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Alex Svetsky. Can you just uh, start by introducing yourself and like what what do you do? Like how do you how do you describe what you do these
1: days? Oh man, um so, so uh, people think I'm a content creator, but I, I only stumbled into that because I was writing about Bitcoin um, because I had something to say. But I, I'm I'm I've always been entrepreneurial, so I built the first uh, Bitcoin DCA app. So you know, everyone knows Swan these days and Relay and all these sort of apps. Uh, we were the first one in the world in Australia, and like the, the the whole concept of treating Bitcoin as a as a savings instrument. You know, I mean. People were talking about it, but there was no product, right? So that's that's where um, that's where I really made my first significant play uh, in Bitcoin was trying to solve a problem, which is to make acquiring Bitcoin simpler and easier. So I, I've always been an entrepreneur. I, I I moved away from that business about a year and a half ago because I, you know, had a disagreement, let's say, with the regulators. And you know, this is probably part of my interest in like seeing, you know, a, a world in which, uh, you know. Products and services can be run by people without having, uh, you know, bureaucratic idiots in the way, um, and you know that that's probably one interest I have in uh, free cities because I think they'll operate uh, a little bit differently. But yeah, these days, I I took a hiatus from running businesses and I published the Uncommunist Manifesto, which was last year's book, uh, and this year I'll publish. Uh, a book called The Bushido of Bitcoin, which is a, which is a new one. And, you know, last year's was obviously you can tell by the name. It was a, it was kind of like a, I don't want to say a rebuttal to the communist manifesto because there's a million of those, but it was, it was a, just a different message, you know, a message more of like uh, individualism, responsibility, you know, liberty and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's super short. It followed sort of the, the structure and the flow of the original Communist Manifesto. So four short chapters, um, each with a particular theme. Um, and, you know, that 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 did well-ish. And, yeah, this new book, The Bushido of Bitcoin, is more a... <clears throat> I think it's going to be the first uh, book on... I don't want to say Bitcoin culture. I want to say... Um, the the culture and the code of virtue or moral code that uh, future societies might want to orient themselves around. Um, Great question then. Bushito. Bushido, is, Bushido. Bushido. What is that? It, so it, How do you um, spell it first? B-U-S-H-I-D-O. Bushido. Is that something Japanese? It's a Japanese word, yes. So basically what it means is way of the warrior. So it's like a, um, it, you know, Probably the closest translation in the West is like uh, chivalry. Um, So, in the in the feudal or yeah, we we would have called it medieval in Europe, but the feudal times uh, in Japan, they you know very much like Europe. There was a there was a feudal caste system, and the samurai were the warrior class. And you know there was there was obviously a a blood origin of samurais but there was also a code that you would be expected to adopt embody and live by um, to be considered a samurai right and those it wasn't like a you know a, a magna Carta or a ten commandments like you know these codes written down right it was like an implicit code and and you know, there's sort of like eight to ten virtues that are said to be in there. Sort of justice, courage, benevolence, um, uh, honor, duty, loyalty, respect, a um, uh, couple others. You know, it's not hitting the top of my head now. Like self-control, for example, restraint, etc. So, so there's these sort of uh, eight to ten virtues that a samurai would be expected to develop, inculcate, and embody. Um, in order to be someone worth revering or someone worth remembering, etc. And um and yeah, what what I did for about the last you know year and a bit was I deep dived into uh, classical texts, ancient texts, feudal, medieval texts, um, and I studied warrior cultures from the Japanese samurai to the ancient Macedonians, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, the the Arthurian sort of uh, west, and I looked at what were the, what were the cultures? Well, first of all, ask the question, which cultures developed the highest or the greatest or the most noble of virtues? And it's always the warrior cultures. But believe it or not, it's not actually peacetime cultures that uh, have great virtues. Peacetime cultures are actually the worst. Um, If you think about the the strong men, weak men cycle, you know, um, it's peacetime where the weak men emerge and basically create debauchery and ruin everything. It's actually warrior cultures that uh, that spring forth the um, the the cultures upon which civilization can be built. So as I found that answer, it was, it was kind of like a... I mean, when you think about it now, it makes sense when you sort of look at it through the frame of the strongman men, men cycle. But initially I was like, oh, th- this is fascinating. And this actually goes against the grain of what most people think. You know, everyone's like, oh, you know, anti-war, blah, blah, blah. But conflict and at least in the... Uh, the classical sense of what war was—not um, the the modern, you know, scummy mercenary sense, right? Um, you know, war or conflict had had a different purpose than than what it does now, and it was the cultures that were sort of forged in those times. Whether it was the Spartans, as I said, the Macedonians, the Samur and all that sort of stuff, they had a different code of living. And um, I did that deep dive, and what I asked myself was can we learn something from each of these cultures and can we take the the virtues that they sort of embodied and develop our own Bushido? Um, because if the world's supposed to change, what's the new playbook? Um, because the playbook today on a fiat standard is figure out, figure out a way to lie, cheat, get into central banking, get into politics. If you can't get into central banking or politics – Get into big business. Get as close as you can to the monetary spigot, right? So all of the incentives align you in such a way that you basically you you're you're trying to win at the expense of your soul, at the expense of your honor, at the expense of your you know integrity, at the expense of all of that sort of stuff. Like the incentive pushes all of civilization in that direction. Whereas, I think on a Bitcoin standard, for example, there's a new there's a new playing field, and that new playing field will require a new set of rules. And my thinking is that, you know, principles that are timeless, like there's, there's, it's just so funny when I was reading like Japanese texts from the 1500s and then uh, Western texts from the 1500s, sort of like when Europe and Japan were both in their glory, the the overlap was ridiculous. Like uh, civilizations that would never have spoken to each other were operating in a very similar way and they had structure and they became... I mean, at least for the East, Japan was ahead of everybody um, and same as sort of the West. So anyway, I think there's a lot we can learn from that. And I put together these 10 virtues that Bitcoiners should seek to embody and not just sort of think, oh, yeah, Bitcoin fixes this. Like, no, there's you, you have to work at this and there's a new rule book. So anyway.
0: what, uh, what Something that springs to mind immediately is, and I've, I've never worked out the the resolve of this, is in those honor cultures. Um, they work very well until you get a, a rat with a gun. Like, you can draw swords, but when you're presented with a gun, um, your sword suddenly, and your honor suddenly sort of loses its value. How, how does the, your version of this deal with that predicament?
1: When you say a gun, are you sort of metaphorically meaning some sort of superior weapon that wrecks the dynamic?
0: Yes. I mean, I'm thinking back to the old cultures. There was honor in dueling, for example, rather than just stabbing your p- opponent in the back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's very easy to arrive at a duel and just shoot the guy immediately, which is the arguably what you're calling the Fiat way. You know, you, you say you're turning up for the duel and you just you know, assassinate the guy mm-hmm. because you're not joining
1: in with the ethos of the honor culture or the whatever. Yeah, it's a tricky one. So, I mean, dueling still happened with guns and people did that, you know, the um, the honorable way. Um, I think that this is where history is sort of, you know, I, I think to a large degree we had to go through this, right, with the with sort of... I question these days the, the rise of the merchant class and almost the the inversion of um, the feudal system. I, I said to Breedlove yesterday, we were hanging on, I said, I think feudalism was um, peak civilization. I think we've gone downhill since we destroyed feudalism because we kind of inverted all the classes. At least there we had, um, you know, some clarity around who was in what class now we've got similar sort of classes but there's no clarity and there's this kind of illusion of we all have a vote and all this kind of crap it's it's a it's a shit show we, we just have some ugly neo-feudalism uh where the, the kind of the worst of the worst are actually at the top whereas at least in the feudal days um you know the the aristocracy and the the royalty. You know th- there was some debauchery there but they were they were far more um there were they were of a different pedigree than you know what you got with the clashwabs of the world today so to to come back to your question it's um how to how to deal with that um i i don't have a clear answer i mean shame shame was a big one um in uh these sort of prior warrior cultures is you you would have um I mean, maybe there's a couple of things here. Great leadership is extraordinarily important. So I use a lot of examples in the book about how Alexander the Great led his men and um, how the Spartans, for example, used shame uh, in order to... Like if, if you had... Um, I think it was if you, if you left your sword behind, and I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but I've got the passage in the book, but if you if you came back without your sword or something like that, there was one set of punishment, but if you uh, came back without your shield, or if it was during battle, like if you misplaced your shield over your sword, um, the the level of um, shame and uh, punishment would be far, far, far greater because um, the honorable thing to do was to ensure that you had the shield to protect the man at your wing, right? Right. And there was these kind of norms, these cultural norms in each of these cultures, which kind of, you know, shuffled the men leading the cultures in a particular direction. Sure, there'd, there'd always be some sort of rat that, um, that changes dynamic. And, and the problem, I think, coming back to sort of this transition where we've uh, lost these honor codes, was that the, the rat was usually a merchant-like personality, it was the guy who would just sell his honor for silver, right? The Judas. Um and it's it's really interesting, is all warrior cultures, the warrior class never, never, never liked the the merchants. In fact, in, in Japan, you had uh the emperor, you had the um, you know, the the emperor's court, you had the daimios, who were the um basically like I don't know, the equivalent in the West might have been the the counts or the dukes or something like that, so large landholders. And then under the, the daimyos you had the um the samurais who were the, the warrior caste. Then you had the artisans, um, then you had the peasants, and below the peasants you had the merchants. Like the merchants were like bottom, bottom class. And they were they were viewed that way because the merchants often had no integrity they often had they often discarded honor they were, they were very materialistic in nature they would sell whatever they could for whatever they could get and what you sort of had where um you know where you had the rise of basically uh you know division of labor capitalism etc 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 um you kind of empowered the merchant who had a line of that kind of behavior in it and you had this big kind of mix up of uh low virtue characters that had access to you know weaponry or wealth or whatever that became the kind of what I today call the parasitic class. I think this is where you know the the ECB, the central bankers of the world and all that sort of stuff, this is where they emerged basically um, because prior to that they would have been sort of the you know the fifth sixth level uh, of the um, of the class structure. so, how do you deal with that? I don't know. I think in in the world in the future, I think being on a Bitcoin standard might create some sort of economic check where it makes it harder for that sort of unscrupulous merchant type to get an edge, to get an advantage. And this is where I kind of, man, I ask a lot of you know really tough questions in the book because th- these are tough questions. It's like, so what do we do? Like, is capitalism actually a bad thing? You know, and and I try and thread the needle behind like between like. No, it's not, but um, it can become a, you know, a bad thing on a, you know, like for example, on a fiat standard without sounding too cliche, but when you can, when you can fuck with the rules um, and there's no consequence to messing out with the rules or somebody else pays for the consequence, you can basically proliferate the kind of character who is the dishonorable one that, uh, you know, shoots when somebody else is using a sword, right? So, so that's kind of the environment that we've built. Um, whereas I think... The, the the winning code and and it's really gonna require, it's almost like uh, recycling. you know, it's you can just throw your garbage in the in the normal bin or you can throw shit in the recycling bin, but it, it kind of requires you yourself to be like, okay, my action matters. And you know, so maybe it's like a mix of, you know Bitcoin changes the playing field, um, and we individually have to act in a better way, uh, inculcate our kids. And, um, and kind of forge a better cultural set of norms that you know are, are different to to what we've got at the moment, and different to like that make being that asshole um, very visible and uh, kind of yeah, just shameful because no nobody wants to be the spotlight, you know, shamed and all that sort of stuff. So, so I think that's the only way to really deal with this stuff. A um, couple of things there. Um, First of all, what is Bitcoin's honor culture then, according to you? I have no idea. I don't don't know if we've got it. The the reason I just say that is because um, I think uh, Bitcoiners are by default going to become the the wealthy class. Um, And if we do, there's kind of three uh, pathways we can take. We can become like the Richard Hart assholes, which is bragging about our jumpsuits, Louis Vuitton and, you know, lambos we could become a new political parasitic class that's very very possible uh, or we could actively try and make ourselves uh into something of a you know of a kind of like a true aristocratic class and i don't and, and people take the word aristocratic in a bad way they're like oh you know those aristocrats i i mean it in the in the classical sense of people with you know culture, people with um, integrity, people with honor, people people with sort of those virtues. Um, so I, I don't know if Bitcoin has a honor culture today. You know, we, we see probably some elements of Bitcoiners who could, for example, go and scam people, who could go do shit coins, who could go uh, do affinity scamming, Ponzi's and all that sort of stuff, but instead chose to build Bitcoin-only businesses or chose like, you know, I, I know some people like Giacomo Zucco and Francis Puglia come to mind, Corey um, comes to mind. Of people like I know Francis, for example, he he had so many offers to uh, you know add shitcoins to his thing and all that. So he, he's foregone millions of dollars, but to do the right thing. So those kind of characters, I think, need to need to sort of emerge, and that's that's really where um. Where things- do you think in in
0: but oh, I suppose what I'm driving at is Bitcoin has intrinsically has some characteristics which people tend to align to. It's kind of common experience amongst bitcoiners to talk about how it changed them for example just by deep diving into the mm-hmm. the history the the, the the way it works um do you see an honor do you see some kind of code there not you know as in you know code an honor some kind of way of living which is
1: inspired by the sort of properties of bitcoin because i know a lot of people talk about that yeah like i asked this question in the book and i try and like explore it and is it is it Bitcoin uh, doing that to them, or did they have those ingredients in them, and it's sort of like a thread that leads them on a path somewhere? Um, I don't know the answer. It's it's obviously a catalyst of some sort, right? You 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 come to Bitcoin, and you and you basically, you know, the realization after a while with Bitcoin is basically sums up to this: it's like, hey, money should not actually be the north star of civilization. You know, money should be this thing that just works. And then becomes invisible because you're able to save the product of your labor. So then you can go and do meaningful things. That's really like the subconscious realization that people come to, and they're like, okay, now that that's not my desperate fucking uh, chase, what can I do? And then they start thinking about you know their health and you know education and you know family and all these other sort of uh, more holistic things because they start to understand that you know money is designed to. D- Designed for savings, and it creates optionality in your life. So, so it's like a big simplification. And when you have that, and this is where I think there's a there's a big, big misconception about the um the classical you know aristocratic classes. A lot of the best art, philosophy, thinking all came from those classes. Um, didn't come from the peasant class, and they they were able to do that because they had savings. You know, on a gold standard, these these sort of wealthier families they had that, and they could think something of higher order and that's what you sort of maybe in some sense seeing with um with bitcoin is is you know when you've got your savings and you have that confidence that government ain't going to touch it nobody's going to touch it and you know in relative purchasing power it's going to increase you 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 sort of your mind opens up to other possibilities and um i think that might you know be part of why people end up going down that rabbit hole and then you know obviously arguably you know maybe bitcoin attracts people who have that sort of predisposition anyway um, so it's probably some mix of that stuff.
0: I know a lot of people are probably going to have an issue with the word ple- peasant. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you mean by that? And I'll give you an example. In comparison to, the say, the word pleb, like mm-hmm. the pleb movement, it's quite obvious, for me at least, the, the difference between someone who's what you would call a pleb, someone who's sort of like a proof of worker versus something like a proof of staker, someone who wants to... Claim rent and someone who wants to add value, say. How does that fit into the the spectrum of aristocracy
1: versus peasants, according yeah, to you? Yeah, I mean I hate the word pleb. I it just pisses me off to no end. Like what's an alternative then? Uh I think people should be striving to be aristocratic. Like, you know, strive to be the best you can be. Strive to be an elite. I think the word elite has been given to these parasites where, you know, the the actual etymology of the word. And so another thing I do in this book is I, every single virtue, I start with a whole um, section of the chapter on etymology, and I explore what these words actually mean all the way back to their Proto-Indo-European sort of roots. And, you know, words like elite essentially, you know, derive from words like excellence, which means to stand apart, you know, or to climb a hill, you know, so so excellence or elite by its very nature is actually a proof of work concept, um, and you know this sort of you know this sort of pleb movement is almost communist in nature. It's like, oh yeah, we the little man. You know, I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. And you know, uh, you know, we kind of like it's 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 a democratic idea. Whereas uh, cultures of greatness and of excellence don't have democratic ideals. They they have ideals of. Uh, greatness or ideals of being the best, you know, or of being the the cream of the crop, you know, essentially, you know, uh, select uh, is where the word elite essentially comes from. So I, you know, my part of my crusade over the coming years is going to be to drop the word pleb and stop kind of defining yourself as a, as a substandard version of yourself. Like to be average is nothing to be proud of. Like plebeian, you know, stems from average. And there's nothing there's no there's no greatness in average there's nothing to be proud of in average and sure we can't be great or excellent in everything but there's dimensions that we can each be great or excellent in and i think that's what we've sort of lost in the modern world to a large degree is this sort of uh you know egalitarianism that has seeped into everything into politics into education into school and even into the very minds of of bitcoiners and i think Um, You know, I mean, honestly, every Bitcoiner in the next 10, 15 years is not going to have the right to even call themselves a pleb because uh, socioeconomically speaking, they're going to be in a 0.01% of the population in terms of wealth anyway. Like, so you're sitting there calling yourself a pleb when... The thing
0: is, though, I've I've always thought of pleb as being a word that was reclaimed. In the same way that "nigger," for example, was reclaimed by the black community because it was a slander, and then it became something that the slandered Possibly. people used. Yeah. That that has always been my interpretation of of <clears throat> of pleb. It's like yeah, I I owning this, and which is something I think Bitcoiners do very well. For example, we've seen it a few times recently. The skull of Satoshi was a classic mm-hmm, example mm-hmm, of that. Mm-hmm. Here comes a, a derogatory symbol which becomes adopted. And now exactly. it's and like, like and it now it's, it's a stuff. trophy. Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure I'm with you on the pleb thing. I, I like I it it's because i a great I,
1: trophy. I don't know if it's a great trophy though, man. It's like what, a, the, what,
0: the, the Satoshi skull. Or, no, no, that's a pleb. great
1: trophy. That's hilarious because yeah. that's a meme, but the, the pleb thing, I don't know if it's a great trophy because like people, words have power. And you know, when people walk around calling themselves that, you know, I, I hear it all the time. It's like, Oh, you know, like for example, I, I'm nobody. We are all Satoshi. Like, the fuck does that even mean like you know particularly the we are all satoshi that one drives me crazy it's like no we're not all satoshi you didn't fucking do anything that satoshi did (laughs) satoshi was a man of excellence like he literally transformed the world what the fuck are you doing like stop you know claiming something that you're not or is is it it is a bit of a cheap shot now you mention it saying
0: we are all satoshi yeah no we're not (laughs) Well, but you understand what they're trying to say. It's I like get we're it. all part of this thing, and know, Satoshi was the guy. You know, but it's
1: such a collectivist mindset. You know, it's 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 sort of it. It's kind of like it lacks the. Um, people say it. They parrot it. They, they, it reminds me, you know, that um, that image of the NPCs, you know, where they're all just sort yes. of there and all just saying yes. You know, this that, what it reminds me of. Like,
0: so is there? Okay, then let's talk about collectivism then, because you've written the Uncommunist Manifesto, which I'm assuming. I haven't read it, sorry, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming it goes quite heavily into <laughs> collectivism. Yes. Um, is there any place for collectivism? Like, for example, in, a, in an honor culture, there, there must be a collective totally. of men. Yeah, totally. So, so how totally. does it work?
1: So this is another big thing I battled with in this book, was I was like, man, you know, trying to like reconcile the ideas here and the ideas in the Uncommunist Manifesto, because some were actually incompatible ideas. But what I found was that there's compatibility in different scales, so you can have collectives, but collectives need to be small in order to be cohesive. And, you know, the, like a, particularly like a warrior collective, um, the, the smaller it is, the more cohesive it is. Like, so, uh, you know, the Marines, for example, or uh, the Spartan Royal Guard or the Macedonian Silver Shields, you know, they were never large. They're always small crack teams and they... Acted not as individuals, but as one body, one mind, one soul, um, and they would sacrifice themselves for the collective, not the other way around, right? And there, there was no there was no place for individualism in those kind of uh, environments. So I, I I don't know what the precise answer to this is because we're gonna have to you know figure out how to rebuild society on a Bitcoin standard in a very different way. Um, All I can sort of trend towards or envision is that any level of collectivism has to break down to smaller units. And at the very least, I think we end up with maybe alliances of smaller collectives that might form sort of these, um, you know, they, they might ally around uh, similar cultural norms, similar beliefs, um, similar, you know, maybe religion, similar weather is another one too, like, or similar terrain. So so you'll sort of have these probably things, but within, within particular territories, um, I think you'll have, uh, you'll definitely still have collectives. But then, you know, my... Part of my argument in the book is that within those collectives, there needs to be this, um, this revering or this, um, this almost like a respect for the great man, which is he who excels. Like we we want we want to see elites basically in these collectives, people who can rise above and um, lead, command, uh, inspire others, and then that's kind of what drives the collective forward in a sense.
0: I mean, what you're describing really is. A version of the city states, medieval city states. I, I suppose they uh, avert, even ancient city states. Yeah, yeah. but it, yeah, of course. And really, I suppose the other thing that, in a macro sense, what you're describing is the decentralisation of power from this point we're at now, which is obviously the pendulum mm-hmm. swinging mm-hmm. back the other way. I was, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you've. <clears throat> you think that's an inevitable or or not we seem to be heading towards more centralization
1: at the moment it looks like yeah it's a tricky one man um i would have said it's inevitable um i mean you know what actually it, it is inevitable long term because it's it's just whether we get there in a in a functional way or in a really destructive way so i think if um if we don't guide ourselves that way and create some sort of um you know, microstructures in and around the, um, the thing where we can sort of like exit and build up. The alternative is that we end up with some sort of, you know, really ugly, like internally nice looking civilization. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of imagining Australia. Um, like everything looks nice on the surface, everything's fine. But basically, you know, the, the economy, the soul and everything gets hollowed out. And everything is so centrally planned. Um, you know, you got some sort of, you know, big brother, brave new world sort of thing. And then the, the structure almost crystallizes to such a degree that when something inevitably goes wrong, which it will, because that's life and that's shit happens all the time. Um, the structure can't mold and adapt. And then it fractures, it crashes, and then things go very, very quickly uh out of control and then we end up in a fragmented state anyway but we got there through such a such a stupid path that will be too weak to know what to do with it you know like i don't know it, it would be a very ugly pathway to get to a more fragmented world anyway what's the what's the smooth way then the smooth way is kind of what we're trying to do now is like build build little micro alternatives um as best as we can uh Communities as best as we can. The Private Cities Initiative is a fantastic initiative. Um, building alternative tools. So the other thing, other than writing this book that I've been working on, is um I'm actually going to announce it at the at the conference here for the first time. But you know, you've got these new AI tools that are popping up, and you know, I, I reject this idea that artificial general intelligence is going to come out of the computers tomorrow and take over the world and kill us. So I think it's absolute. Uh, a nerd's nihilistic wet dream on the one hand or honestly like a red herring on the other hand because um i mean we're we're so like far from even understanding uh cognitive intelligence let alone like all of the other like general intelligence implies things like hormonal intelligence muscular intelligence like biochemical like all this other stuff makes general intelligence like we can't even count the amount of intelligences there are um and we think that we're going to create sentience out of like computational intelligence alone, which is a narrow sliver of stuff. So I don't think AGI is a, a risk. But what I do think is a risk is, if you think about where the internet started, the internet is this uh, was this uh, universe of ideas in cyberspace where people could share ideas and think differently. And it was kind of like a flourishing of, you know, concepts and knowledge widened. But then we sort of had the search engine and social media kind of rise up. And, and that made You know, indexing and finding information a lot easier, and you know we were able to create all these communities. But what sort of happened in time is that the entire internet, like, has become basically the first page of Google, right, (laughs) or your Twitter algorithm, what's on the top, Um, and and that's dangerous because you kind of narrow down where everything is. And what's happening with these new language model tools, particularly, I think the language model tools are going to be the most uh, important, at least in the short to medium term, is that. In the next couple of years, you will no longer like search Google anymore. You just talk to whatever your language model is, and that that portal will become how you view the world, where you get your knowledge from, where you get your ideas from, and all of that. Now, all of this call for AI regulation because AGI is going to kill us. What they're aiming to do is put together these um, these committees for AI safety. And what is the AI safety committee looking to do? Regulate the language models, which is essentially another word for regulate speech, which is essentially another word for create an Overton window through which the information or the ideas that everyone gets come from. So imagine like, the the, let's say two language models that you can use you can use google or you can use chat gpt and that's all you can use because they're the approved ones and they are run through toxicity and safety filters and responsibility filters and the same idiots that lock the whole world down are the ones who are going to apply these filters and that's the information that everybody gets to gets like and it's basically creating npcs of the the whole world so that's where i think the real risk is so one of the projects that i'm working on now is basically building a bitcoin centric large language model so it's going to Start with, um, you know, Bitcoin and libertarian sort of ideas and spread out from there. And hopefully we can create an alternative. We're going to open source it. We're going to try and engage the whole Bitcoin community to help us train it and build it. And I mean, this comes back to the question of like, what do we do? It's like alternatives, 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 alternatives. Bitcoin is alternative money. We need alternative AI. We need... Uh, alternative places to live we need alternative governance we need alternative supply chains for food for energy for all this sort of stuff that's the clean way of at least as these you know bureaucratic shit shows of a nation state sort of start to fall apart there's something there for people to exit into that keeps the you know engine of humanity going Um, or in the absence of that yeah we just find ourselves to fragmentation in a really really ugly way it has occurred to me actually. I've never thought about this before. I
0: don't know whether you know the answer to this, but when people were developing AI, why was it language models they they went to first? Like, what is it? I mean, I'm not sure I really understand even what they mean by it, what, an AI language model. Um, I just thought about it because you did mention there are plenty of models for other ones uh, for intelligence, let's say why what, is that is the reason that they went to language models first because there is language describing everything is that what a language model is is it like is it a computer looking at everything that's ever been said and trying to aggregate a sort of general answer i'll tell you why because with say so something like chat i find the best way to rate it is to ask it about yourself if you've got a public profile you know, i asked it about me and it had um it associated me with a bunch of completely random things, and even said I'd written a couple of books that, when I tried to find them, didn't even exist by authors that didn't even exist. So, mm-hmm. what?
1: Okay, let me dispel some of this here. So, so I, I don't think the language models um, was something that they tried to uh, consciously do. It was an accident. Um, there was a there was a this transformer architecture that. Uh, came out in a paper in 2016, 2017, which at the time wasn't so significant. But what it meant was that the way um, the way machine learning algorithms could work was through uh, attention on specific words. And without getting into the, the the details here, basically a result of that was the ability to build what essentially are probability engines. That's what these language models are. That could very accurately do sentence complete. You know, they could they could very accurately guess the next letter, or the next word in a sentence, or the next sentence in a sentence, right? And prior to this breakthrough, um, you know, if you read like Nick Bostrom's book Superintelligence, you know, which is you know a load of vomit, honestly. But, um, you know, that was the premier book on artificial intelligence and superintelligence and stuff like that. And, you know, in there, him and all the rest of them claim that, oh, solving language is what they call an AI complete problem, which is when we have solved uh, language and we can talk to a computer, we'll have artificial general intelligence. And then from that point, it'll spiral out of control and it'll become superintelligence and it'll take over the world. Wrong. Um, What we... Realized was that uh, much of language is a pattern thing, um, and it's actually a you know it's obviously some form of intelligence, but it's so far from general intelligence, it's not even funny. And uh, what these what these ChatGPT and things are doing is they're essentially that they've been trained probabilistically on which words are strung together in a sentence to sound coherent. Um, that you can have a conversation with a computer and it sounds real and it sounds sentient, but it's not, it doesn't actually know anything. It's not real. It's not sentient. It's not intelligent. Um, Or maybe it's narrowly intelligent, um, but it doesn't know anything in the same way as you and I might know something. Um, And people are very quick to anthropomorphize this, you know, and it's funny, like in my talk, I'm going to give on Saturday, like I've got this meme, which is um, someone talking to a parrot and the parrot says, I'm going to kill all humans. And it's like, you're just the parrot, shut the fuck up. And then it, chat GPT, I'm going to kill all humans. Like, oh my God, it's alive. You know, like it's basically the same thing. So so I kind of call these things stochastic parrots. Like they're, they're probability engines that function like parrots. And because it's the first time in human history that we've been able to talk to something other than a human and other than a parrot that strings together coherent sentences, we all of a sudden imagine that it's alive and it's sentient and all this sort of stuff. So um, yeah, so to both your questions it wasn't intentional we got here by accident um and secondly it's not sentient it's just a probability engine so come on then how do you like compare
0: and contrast the language model with how you know something Ha- we, you just described how the language model knows something. It's an aggregator of probabilistic, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So how we, do you we know prob- something? We
1: probably do something similar, but that question there is an well, What about
0: what about consciousness? And like, how does that all fit into the thing?
1: That's like a that's a question that we've been trying to answer for well, I don't know. Give it a 10, shot. What's your version of that? No idea. Th- no th- idea. Th- yeah, th- there is absolutely no idea. We have no idea what consciousness is. We have no idea, that we, like there's no def- there's no definition of consciousness there's no definition of intelligence like there's there's narrow elements and there's a bunch of factions fighting like a lot of the AI people they subscribe to this idea of computational theory of um, mind which is they think that all intelligence is just pattern recognition and you know computation um, and they think that um consciousness stems from that like consciousness is a higher order version of that then there's people who talk about embodied Intelligence, where they say that <clears throat> it's not just what goes on in the mind, but we have neurons all throughout our entire body, in our in our gut, in our muscles, in everything. And uh, in order to achieve consciousness, there needs to be you know a far greater degree of interconnected intelligences together for consciousness to emerge. Then there's other factions that say no, consciousness is the prime mover. Consciousness has existed forever, um, and then. Uh, intelligence grows and then finally taps into consciousness. Um, so, so there's all sorts of different ones. There's the religious one, which is you know consciousness was endowed by God to human beings specifically, and that's why there is such a. Although we only have a you know one or two percent difference with monkeys and apes in terms of our DNA, there is a universe of difference in the way we cognitively understand things and in the way we ha- have consciousness compared to all other animals. So. There's all sorts of like the the thing is nobody can prove it. So the the, the question is, which uh, which um, which ideology do you sort of take? Which one is the most functional ideology to adopt? Right, and it's um it's a tricky one. I, I I generally tend to adopt the the ideologies that are the least nihilistic, for example. Do you think AI? and our sort of journey in language models is going to help us understand what consciousness is? Maybe, maybe not, but I think it's a... I I tend to think not because um, I think it's one of those uh, problems of magnification. You, You end up understanding something at a certain level of magnification, and then when you go a little bit deeper, for example, then it's a different thing. And then there's another layer, so you go a bit deep, and then it's a different thing. And you've almost got these, like, infinite layers of magnification to understanding stuff, um, which is why, for example, we can't replicate meat, right? So, like, you know, all these Beyond Meat guys and all that sort of stuff, they they, they can understand meat to some level, right? And they can replicate maybe the fibers and some of the macronutrients and blah, blah, blah. But nobody has any clue, you know, at a deeper level, like, what what is it about... The meat and about the proteins and about that stuff that makes it assimilable to us. Like so, so like you could go down n number of levels to really understand that. So you can't like, you can't replicate nature. And this is this is another like there's a really great essay about that by a lady called Megan Lillywhite, and she talks about like how the the greatest inventions of humankind are not attempts to replicate nature, but attempts to um, to enhance nature. So like when we built flying machines, we didn't build fucking wings um, that flapped, right? We built a plane. Or when we wanted to, like the pen that you're using at the moment, it's it's an extension of the mind. It's not a replication of the mind. So when we approach tooling that way, we seem to enhance ourselves. When we try and make a copy, we end up fucking it up because there's no way of understanding it to the, to the greatest degree.
0: Okay, then. so talking of enhancing then, because this is a big subject for myself. I think about this a lot transhumanism Mm -hmm. and in i mean obviously like you say we're already enhancing it i'm enhancing my ability to think now with a pen in my hand what's your particular personal view on really incorporating technology in your body is it something you'll go along with
1: no i I just think there's so many um trade-offs and i think once again it's just people who don't understand trade-offs um, that are going to go and do it, make a bunch of mistakes and turn themselves into, you know, they're going to give themselves all sorts of cancers and all sorts of weird shit. Like, try, like for example, the, the Neuralink is one that I find funny. And honestly, language models actually make Neuralink obsolete, right? The point of Neuralink was so that you could increase the bandwidth between your thoughts and the computer, right? Um, language models will do that because now you can just talk to a model Talk to a computer, basically. Talk to a program, and it'll go and execute functions for you. So now that's kind of almost made like to get the 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 minor increase in throughput from thinking to talking.
0: That might not it's be not so gonna be mi- worth. It. it might not be so minor though, when you think about it. I mean, our bodies are a process of thoughts and intentions, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Presumably, and um, I'm not telling my arm to raise. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in intending it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I think maybe Neuralink might be a way of intending. Yeah, but the question there is,
1: are you implanting Neuralink in the right part of the brain? Yeah, I've I got a clue. Mate. I'm not. I'm, yeah, I don't think I'm going yeah, down that route. But that's the thing. So nobody actually knows. Nobody really knows which part of what actually makes the arm do its thing. So we're we're gonna go through and like, I for damn sure ain't gonna fucking start plugging shit in my brain to try and hopefully. Uh, you know, hit the right spots. And we don't even know if the entire intelligence of those acts is actually in the brain or maybe it's like 70% of it is there and the other neurons are actually in other parts of the body, which then implies maybe we need to jab, you know, electrodes into all other parts of our body to actually, you know, tap into all these different intelligences. So it's like a, once again, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a strange pursuit and i think it's going to come with a lot of um okay then mistakes what happens when a augmented
0: samurai culture emerges how do you then i mean you talked about conflict at the start and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think a lot of people would see the the future as a way of resolving conflict but i get the sense you think conflict's an important part of just everyday life totally conflict right okay. always exists. Let, yeah. let, all right let's assume that then so how do you deal with an augmented samurai who can basically snap your neck with his fingers plus can
1: think a hundred times thousand times faster well, but than that they're all just assumptions we, we don't know whether you know creating an augmentation in sort of like uh you know some implanted augmentation might give them superior strength for a year or two but then something happens where it decays the blood and they die early we have no fucking idea
0: i thought though presumably we could i mean you can see already that the phone which is a first level augmentation isn't it because Mm -hmm. and we always carry it on us the whole time that really has augmented our abilities to think
1: Mm -hmm. but has it made people softer and and maybe it's made actually people dumber because now people, you know, they, they outsource their thinking to that. We accept.
0: Um, my experience of, the, say, the last 10 years has been I have never learnt as much, even the last five years, through listening to podcasts, for example, mm-hmm. I have learned an incredibly immense amount. If I know, I think about studies and traveling and all this kind of stuff. It all happened in the last five years, really, mm-hmm. in, 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 and that was through listening to podcasts, which was a, a function of an augmented, mm-hmm. my augmented body. Let's say my phone. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so it does. It is having a good effect as well. I see what you. I know what you mean. That do I really want something in my body that? Could be manipulated like my phone is manipulated
1: yeah so th- this is the thing it's like <clears throat> when when we get afraid of this stuff what we forget is that every single one of these things actually has a trade-off so you you win in one dimension but you actually lose in another dimension and this is this is actually the beauty of the world is that some of maybe these micro cultures will go ahead and make the trade-off to you know get is superior in one way but they might become inferior in another way and therefore you know they might be better at killing you for example but they might be very very bad at maybe operating a business or having division of labor because they are literally required to all operate the same way right so then maybe there's other cultures who are like okay these guys are really good at that so we should team up and we can actually innovate faster than they can so then you know we kill them so so there's nature always just seems to have a way of creating an equilibrium as much as we think that we can you know uh create these weird imbalances like and have this one way that is superior there's no such thing there's just superior in a particular dimension and that when you get really good in one dimension you naturally weaken yourself in others Um, and then nature sort of does its thing
0: so your your theory about an emerging culture that's necessary um I think probably someone who would be considering aug- augmenting themselves a bit more would say that you're looking to the past f- f- for your inspiration, whereas they're looking to incorporate a
1: future which is kind of unknown.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any truth in that?
1: Uh, I mean, I mean, I just think that there's, there's a big difference between uh, the material nature of the world and sort of the metaphysical nature of the world. So... The material nature of the world is something that is um, ever-changing and adapting. But principles, for example, generally always stay the same. They've never really changed. Um, and that's something like when you try and evolve principles too much, you would end up going forward, you end up going backwards, right? Um, and yeah, like we, we we've had this conflation of concepts is just because we can make uh, you know, stronger steel and improve it incrementally. Um, we think we can make uh, stronger morals or something or stronger virtues, like, but it's never the case because courage has always been courage and it is courage today. And it's the same thread that spans time. I suppose
0: I suppose another way of what I'm trying to say then is that the, the morals can stay the same, the principles can stay the same, but the technology that around those morals mm-hmm. can increase and yeah, like i say I, i'll go back to the the idea that a warrior culture without technology is probably going to be beaten by a warrior culture with technology totally so so what is, so how does that work <laughs> like i i agree that i think in the future i'm i'm I don't know how far in the future, but we we will decentralise again. I think nation states will fragment. We'll end up with many smaller units of culture, which I think are also more much much easier to operate. But there will presumably still be conflict mm-hmm. between those.
1: Mm-hmm. No. Fuck yeah, there'll be conflict. There'll be you know there'll be opportunities to take someone else's territory. You know if they're weak or if they've you know whatever. Like it's always going to exist.
0: How do you stop? The, the marauders coming into your you need culture to build,
1: you need to build your own damn strong warrior culture
0: right but what if they've got like something crazy are you, are, yeah i mean who knows whether this is gonna happen but i'm imagining guys with exoskeletons and
1: shit you you, know. be, you better build your own fucking exoskeletons
0: <laughs> you know or
1: you better, better build your own you know team of robots i, I don't know like you, well
0: you, that's you, the thing that's <clears> the, <throat> the other thing ai and drones i mean this is Uh, Do you think much about warfare? I suppose you do. Right, okay. So warfare, how does warfare look in the future? Because, well, obviously the moment we hit nuclear, there was a predicament. And since then I've heard a few theories like Jason Lowry saying, you know, will Bitcoin will be uh, something people will use to show their power, let's say. Um, But then you think, well, yeah, but what about drones? You know, when you can fly a thousand drones to a place and annihilate it, people are going to do that. People are definitely going to do that. It's that's not going to. It's not going to stop people having smaller scale battles and stuff. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you just need to think of uh, why they're doing it or what the what what are they trying to gain? You know what I mean? Like it's it's very rare that people just go around just like killing people. Sure, there's like some really really minor subset of um you know the population that is genuinely serial killer psychopathic, right? But Um, There's there's usually something to gain or there's some sort of purpose behind doing that um, or there's some sort of mission or there's some sort of strategy. So, I mean, warfare will always remain warfare. Like what are the – why are people fighting Um, and is there a better deal to be made through cooperating um, or warring? Is there a risk of attacking someone and then, you know, the retaliation also hurting you? Um, So – they're the problems we're going to have to just navigate, and the thing is, we won't navigate them very well if we're stupid enough to tell ourselves that we'll never have conflict, because then the one who does believe there's conflict is going to fucking wipe you out.
0: What's so, your What's your take on um, soft war, Jason Lowry's? Ideas? I haven't read
1: or listened to a thing of his uh, that he's ever said.
0: What I would try and say what I think I know about it, but he is implying that. Um, because we can no longer fight large scale wars with each other because they're self and we would they're self- annihilating. Um, he suspects that hashing power might be something that people use as a as a as a kind of secondary way of warring, as mm. in um, he gives some relatively interesting examples like um, in nature where say stags, for example. They, they grow horns to duel. But when you're growing a, a way of dueling, you don't really want to kill each other. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help your species mm-hmm. in the long run. Mm-hmm. So you end up creating something very obvious. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes a projected version of your power. So you're you're now saying, look, I've got the biggest antlers. We kind of don't need to fight. And everyone's like, cool. And I think his version of what he's saying is Bitcoin hashing becomes that projected version of power because everyone knows that you can't fight a nuclear war because then everyone dies mm-hmm. so you you find you find a way of, pro- of using projected power i think
1: that's what you're saying i mean that makes sense um i think that'll be one of those projected powers i think there'll be others as well though is um you know and maybe that's where things like drones and robots and stuff like that come in um and that you know that that is a that is a signal or a sign of projected power i mean so is economic power so is you know cultural power and stuff like that i mean like switzerland's an interesting example is you know they're neutral but they have some of the you know best fighters and warriors and army out there right like isn't that an interesting sort of concept is like um you know could particular territories for example structure themselves in such a way that you know all men at a particular age, you know, go do, you know, proper military service. And, you know, they, you develop a ring of defense, but you structure your civilian culture in such a way that is designed around customer service, tourism, and you become like a, a beacon of, you know, that. And then you just make multilateral arrangements with everybody that, hey, we don't get involved in any sort of, you know, Conflict, you know. Once again, that that is literally like the Switzerland model. Now, not everybody can do that. Some city states might be like, okay, we we are the the mercenary state, and all we do is go to battle, and you know, you pay us a fee, and that's what we do. Like, I I don't know. You know, is is that the way we go? Is there some sort of variation of that? Is there like, you know, a more integrated version of that in the future city state? Who knows? I think we just figure that out. Just before we go.
0: Obviously, without giving too much away, you don't want to dox yourself. But how is it? Can I ask how you're living currently yourself? In in what situation are you living? Are you nomadic? Are you some? What what are you doing in the now and in preparation for a future that you see arising in a practical sense? mean, in a practical sense, in a practical sense
1: um, uh, hopefully you know, starting a family very shortly. Um, I am trying to like set roots now. So I've been nomadic for too long and I fucking hate it. It's the worst. Um, I am trying to build businesses. Um, so generate wealth because I think that's absolutely important. You, you need to have wealth and op- uh, optionality. Um, and then I'm trying to do... I'm trying to build those... Uh, businesses and generate that wealth in a way that is, uh, I guess, I don't want to say moral, but virtuous, you know, like, so So I want to do something that actually uh, moves the world closer to uh, heaven and less to hell, right, to use a Jordan Peterson-esque thing, because I think at least, you know, when you get older and when you're on your deathbed and all that sort of stuff, I think you want to look back and be, you know, have some sort of, you know, pride you know about what you've done because I think that's um I mean I don't know the older I get the more I think that you, you kind of realize that you, you can't you just really can't turn the clock back you know so you really only get one shot at doing stuff um and you want to do it from a place of integrity you know from a place of honor from a place of you know all these sort of things we've been discussing and I'm trying to live like that because you know when, when you sort of live in that kind of alignment you just I don't know life works better, you feel better, you know, things around you seem to work better, so.
0: What about a, a scenario? You say you want to put down roots. Can you describe the kind of scenario that is? In example, is it a farm in the countryside? Is it a city? Is it a, you know, a particular country? Is it what?
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, it's like, I mean, i love to have a farm but at this stage that's like out of um out of price range at least and then also i i, I kind of like to be a little bit closer to civilization um i like the beach so i'm just picking things that i like you know i like to have um good access to food um i like to have somewhere i can train physically so whether it's you know fighting or whether it's like more like uh uh body training stuff like that so yeah, I just sort of pick and optimize for those things. You know, I'm, I'm not in, I'm not expecting some collapse of civilization tomorrow. All that sort of shit. Like, definitely not. Um, so you know, I, I I was over the last couple of years, and I I realized it's part of part of my you know epiphanies is that things are too complex to just like break apart tomorrow. Um, so you know that there is this sort of bifurcation of the world and everything. But I'm just gonna do my little part, trying to push it, you know, in a better way. And yeah, just stop being, like, so so much of a hypochondriac, like, everything's going to end tomorrow. I need to have a fucking Citadel, baked beans and guns and all this sort of shit. Like, I don't think we really need to take it that far.
0: I, I agree with you on that one. Although, when you think about the fall of the Soviet bloc, um, it took a while, obviously, but it did happen pretty quickly. I mean, on, and, and but it also didn't happen as devastatingly as you
1: you people probably would have expected. Correct. But that's because you had these like little micro things going on, like the black market basically saved the Soviet bloc because there was already this stuff happening and you know when the veil fell like there was something to catch it.
0: I suppose the lesson there is make sure you have a good network. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks Alex, it's been good talking to you mate. Thanks for your time Always. and uh, I look forward to your speech here at
1: BTC Prague. Thank you sir. Appreciate it. Thank you.